Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Market View on Money FM 89.3. Good morning. This is Your Money with me, Michelle Martin. Joining me now to break down all the market action, the very hardworking, you woke up very early in the morning. Willie Kang, how are you? Good morning, Michelle. Yeah. Well, it's been it's been a while since I woke up at 4 a.m., but it was great. <laughs> I'm now fully awake. I know you're a morning person, but that's very <laughs> early morning. Let's try to keep you going, Willie, at least for the next uh, 15 minutes or so. Let's start the morning with the earnings announcements from two very different companies. One is a big pharmacy chain and the other a major U.S. airline. The earnings of one company surged while profits at the other came in below expectations, but you wouldn't really know it uh, looking at how their shares performed overnight. More about that in a moment. But first, let's unveil the companies in question. They're Delta Airlines and Walgreens Boots Alliance. I'm going to start with Delta. Its profits surged 60% in the third quarter of the year. Thanks to a jump in international travel during the what's called the summer holidays over in the U.S., it grossed more than $14 billion U.S. dollars through the July to August period. So when we look at Delta, what strikes you when you look at the numbers? Mm, so if you see for its quarterly report, Delta said that it's ex- it expects adjusted full-year earnings of $6 to $6.25 a share. And it has also cut its free cash flow estimate for the year to $2 billion from the $3 billion it forecasts in the summer. So it said that it expects solid travel demand in the last three months of the year and you will estimate revenue would go up to 9 to 12% from the same quarter in 2022 with per share earnings of $1.05 to $1.30 which was in line with its estimates. So it was very interesting here like what you said Michelle mm-hmm. its profit rose nearly 60% in the, the third quarter really driven by air travel demand. But despite Delta's strong performance, investors sold off Delta overnight. Delta shares fell 2.3%. If we turn to the Walgreen Boots scene of things, side of things, the US and UK retail pharmacy chain lost money in the third quarter of the year, but not quite as much as before. It lost 180 million US dollars during the last quarter of the fiscal year. So why is Walgreen seemingly losing money? Mm, so... I guess it's um, pretty interesting here because on one hand, while you see Wal- while you see Delta actually making pretty good profits, on the other hand, Walgreens have actually came with softer profit and reported fiscal fourth quarter earnings that fell short f- fell short of expectations as demand for COVID vaccines and tests started to sink in the US. So it seems mm-hmm. like the retail pharmacy giant has now underperformed Wall Street's adjusted earnings expectations for two straight quarters in a row. Interesting comparison there. Next up, let's turn our attention to China, where a state fund has purchased shares in the country's banks for the first time since 2015. Central Huijin Investment has bought some 65 million US dollars worth of shares in four Chinese banks, as according to filings made this week. Uh, the bank, the banks are the Bank of China, the Agricultural Bank of China, China Construction Bank, and the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China. Central Huijin investment says it will continue to increase its holdings in the banks over the next six months and its purchases are stoking speculation that Beijing is going to take further steps to 
prop up Chinese stock markets. This reminded me a little of the article uh, that you wrote recently on your blog about Chinese banks, big Chinese banks. What do you make of this news? Mm, so it's actually very interesting, Michelle, because one thing which I don't really understand that, you know, while while China State has actually purchased this bank shares, they are actually very small purchases because if you see for the purchases, um, Huijing actually purchased roughly about um, 24, 25 million bank, bank of China shares, which have raised its holdings from um, 64.02% to 64.03%. And it's not very significant. Even if you see for the Agricultural Bank of China, mm-hmm. it only has raised from 40.03% um, to 40.04%. And, and this is these are not very significant moves here. But yet, you know, it seems like the market has caught on that the Chinese state government is supporting these Chinese banks. I guess it's more of an op to show optically that you know, there is actually a state support on one hand. But on the other hand, I think it's also interesting to note that for these Chinese banks, um, they are still relatively in a very strong financial position because if you compare um, these Chinese banks, say, for example, to the US mega banks, you know, you, to your likes of your JP Morgan, to your City to your Citigroup and your Wells Fargo, these Chinese banks, they do have a pretty healthy loans-to-deposit ratio. That's one. And they are flushed with um, a strong deposit franchise because if you compare these Chinese banks, the top four Chinese banks, with the regional banks in China, the amount of deposits which are funded in these big four banks are actually in a very healthy position, which means that if they are able to continue to lend out to, say, your property sectors, your manufacturing companies, um, they are still in a very healthy position to do so. So, on one hand, you are looking at a pretty healthy financial position. But on the other hand, for me, when you're looking at how the state is actually buying out these banks, I don't think it will be a huge material impact to the Chinese banks, given that the stakeholding is not very big, number one. And number two, I don't think that um, it will significantly affect how the share price performance will be, considering the amount of shares in relation to the total number of shares um, which some of these um, Chinese bank shares are floating on the market. Interesting. So less a substantial move and more a symbolic move, maybe to bring confidence back to the markets. Central Huijin's share purchases gave a boost to Chinese banking shares yesterday. The Bank of China, the Agricultural Bank of China and the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China all finished up 4% or more in Hong Kong trade. China's Construction Bank closed up 2.6%. There's a lot of speculation that Beijing will introduce a new package of stimulus measures to give China's economy a boost. Of course, we've heard this before, and we know that expectations don't always pan out. But what do you think? Is this currently a good time to get back into Chinese stocks, or uh, should listeners sit this one out for listeners who haven't heard us chat before? (laughs) (laughs) What do you say? Well, Michelle, you know, from the last... From the last interview, you will know that this China is a market which I tend to focus on, and I do have positions in the Chinese market just mm. for disclaimer. Um, so the thing about China is because you know I look at um, opportunities when there, there are actually mispricing in the, in the market, meaning that I don't take contrarian views just for the sake of being contrarian. I, I want to see where there's value, meaning value meaning that there's a difference in how the share price has been traded and the business value of all some of these underlying shares itself. So in China, it does it does actually offer some opportunities. For instance, you know, if you're looking at the Chinese banks, you know, they are actually trading at a 60, 60 to 70% discount from their book value just so because there's a fear of how the Chinese market has been. I mean, the Chinese banks have been very closely linked to the Chinese economy. So any little struggle or little change in how the economic data is could definitely send a ripple effect 
on Chinese bank shares, for example. That, that, but does that mean that China banks are not going to perform well overnight? Does that mean that they're not able to actually lend out loans anymore? Mm. I don't think so because if you look at the past quarterly reports or the past couple of years, Chinese banks have been growing not only their, their, their margins, but at the same time, they have been expanding their assets as well, uh, growing, lending out money across to different sectors. So on one hand, if we see how Chinese stocks are, the, the sell-off, you know, from from my perspective, is really driven by the global funds selling off, and that could be a pressure from their own clients selling selling off um, the funds. And I guess it's not surprising because if I were a foreign investor sitting in, say, in the US or in Europe, and I see from a country far away from my country, and I see that you know, there is the stock market sell-off. The first thing which I will do is I will definitely call my fund manager and say, hey, sell all my shares. I don't care whether it's good or bad. I just want to get out of it. <laughs> and anyway, if I'm sitting in the US, interest rates are going higher. The rate of return is also going higher for me. So why would I want to invest overseas when I can just invest in my home market? That's There's a but from- here. There's a but here. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> of course. But if we are seeing, if we are local investors in Singapore, in Asia, and we are closer to the market, it does make sense to find out what's exactly going on. So there is a difference in terms of the biases, in terms on, of the outlook and the lenses if we actually adopt as investors from different geography. This is a great conversation. You know, I love it when I get Willie talking about something he's invested in. Our China's benchmark CSI 300 is down 5% over the past three months, but it jumped nearly 1% yesterday on news of Central Huijin's bank share purchases. All right, time to look at two Chinese companies and we'll do it up or down style and maybe get a sense of if Willie's seeing that valuation gap here or not. Willie, <laughs> let's start with China Everbright. All right, so China Everbright recently um, uh, had an announcement that its former party chief and chairman uh, of Chairman Li Xiaopeng was expelled from the Communist Party and his post for severe violations of discipline and law, including bribery. So I guess this is this comes at a time where China is actually trying to tighten its grip on corporate, corporate governance here. Mm. Because there is actually a difference. I mean, if you are as investors, if you are looking into the Chinese market, actually the state-owned companies are actually coming up much cleaner than the private companies. Because if you see over the years, Chinese the Chinese government has a move or has a trend in trying to clamp down um, bribery cases, corruption cases. Now, where the the danger and the risk lies in Chinese companies are usually the private-owned companies. So in this case, uh, where we see the the expel of the China Bright Group, former party chief and chairman, I guess this is a positive sign. So it's an up for me. Well said, well said. Just to recap, Li Xiaoping, who was head of China Everbright until March last year, has been arrested on charges of taking bribes. Li's arrest comes days after he was kicked out of the CCP. Li may be China Everbright's ex-boss, but this is certainly a bad look for the banking giant. I'm going to give this a down. Next up, how is Xiaomi looking in your books? Mm, so it seems like Xiaomi is releasing, um, there are rumours that it is releasing its new smartphone devices, which is the Xiaomi 14 and the Xiaomi 14 Pro. And it seems like there's also another rumour out of China claiming mm. that Xiaomi wants to be the first phone maker to announce new devices using the new chipset. And this is to ensure that... Um, it's released. It's rumored to release on the 27th of October. This comes after the day of after Qualcomm's Snap Dragon Summit ends. So I guess this is a positive for people who are actually very interested in looking at Xiaomi's flagship smartphones. 
Yes, and also for people, I just have a little additional detail to add to that because yesterday we were talking about how Huawei's new EV is selling like hotcakes. Um, everybody seems to want to make electric vehicles in China, including Xiaomi. So the smartphone giant is reportedly looking to partner with an established automaker to help it produce a Xiaomi-branded car. Xiaomi is also applying for regulatory approval so it can manufacture the EV's Directly, I'd say this is an up for Xiaomi. How would you feel about driving a car made by a smartphone company, Willie? Wow, I would feel... You know what I'll feel, Michelle? <laughs> I'll feel sexy. <laughs> <laughs> and you know why? Because you know it just makes you feel so cool, right? Yeah. And in the Internet of Things where you're looking at smartphones, you're looking at how automation really helps. And getting into a car, like what you have mentioned, you know, where it's created by a smartphone maker, I thought this is something incredible. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait to see what this could look like. Even Apple is looking to get into the EV game. Um, I just heard that it has a code project, uh, a code name for its project, and it's called Titan. Mm. Uh, Although some people are calling it the iCar. <laughs> that would be logical. So, so much for platforms these days and all the ecosystems which are coming out. Exactly. I mean, I want to control my car by app. I have another sort of, you know, fun fun scenario for us to go through, Willie. This one is called Broker's Take, where I name a stock, you give me your take on it, and I'll share the most recent analyst call. And then you can rebut the analyst if you like. So, are you willing to give this a go? Yeah, let's do it. First up is a locally listed tech company that designs and manufactures, as you say, IoT internet of thing devices as well as led lights also makes other electrical products and this is called aztec global what's your take on it mm. so if you see for the backdrop here uh, in terms of aztec global uh, what what is happening right now is for aztec actually recently won a significant portion of its order book um, and is slated to deliver this huge amount which is close to about 600 million dollars by the end of 2023 so the brokers have expected the Aztec Global's Pase Gudang plan to help support its revenue growth and this has sort of added to its its call here so for me I think for Aztec Global I think it's, it is interesting because um, it is it's it has seen its growing order books here. Now, what what I will actually pay attention to, and this is something which I might not fully agree with the analysts, and that is Aztec Global might not be a very big player. So it relies a lot on global players trying to fit it a lot of its contracts, which means that it's heavily reliant on how the economy or the global economy is doing. And as you have seen, that there are many big companies, manufacturing companies, semiconductor companies, which might actually face some form of pullback in terms of number one, their capital expenditure and number two because they are facing more of a sort of a down cycle going on from here because of high interest rates by the Fed which means that smaller companies like for example Aztec Global and other mid-cap manufacturing uh, companies in Singapore might face this kind of risk all right. CGSEIMB is bullish on Aztec Global. It has raised its target price on the stock to $1.23 a share. That's more than 40% higher than where the stock is trading today. CGSEIMB thinks Aztec Global is set to capitalize on greater economies of scale. It's also predicting a 56% jump in the company's third quarter profits. I think we're going to find out more Monday because that is when Aztec Global shares uh it's Q3 business update. So a lot more data points there. Let's turn to the US now. Amazon, what's your view? Mm, so Amazon 
recently said that its October Prime Day has outpaced last year's event. So Prime members have scooped up more than 150 million items from the third-party e-commerce sellers. And it's very interesting here because the shopper's profile, it seems like they are favouring more on the essential items such as protein powders, uh, batteries, sort of your daily essentials versus the big-ticket purchases. So on one hand, you are looking at a very healthy uh, company for for example for Amazon uh, you know making big sales through its online platform but on the other hand you are also watching out how the consumer or the customer behavior is like because they are it seems like Amazon is showing that there is a shift in terms of big discretionary item spending to much smaller daily essential spending, which also could be a reflection on how the economy would actually play out over the next quarter or even the next year as well. So in this case, you know, while Amazon has actually done pretty well in terms of its Prime Day, um, I think sometimes it's good to dig deeper beneath the surface and see what sort of shadow risk is underlying some of this um, consumer behaviour. Still need to look at that risk factor. Then Goldman Sachs says it remains bullish on Amazon, even though it is lowering its target price on the stock by a couple of dollars ahead of Amazon's earnings announcement later this month. If you look at Amazon shares, they're up 57% since the beginning of the year. They're currently trading at around $132 a share. Goldman Sachs has set a target price of $175. Netflix, what's your view? Netflix has recently opened stores um, where fans can play, shop and eat in come the next two years. Mm. And this will be named Netflix House. So it's very interesting because for Netflix, they are sort of following the footsteps of Disney where Disney is also providing entertainment value, family value, uh, experiential value here. And that's what Netflix is trying to do. Now, what's interesting here is that Michelle, for Netflix, over the last couple of years, they have been growing very aggressively in terms of their subscribers. But when Reed Hastings started to talk about how the subscriber base has started to slow down in terms of their growth and that it's trying to move into an advertising model here, sort of a part hybrid advertising model or paid subscription, it sort of begs the question here is, you know, is Netflix subscription model sustainable going forward? And when it comes to the stores and the, the, the experiential entertainment stores, which is opening uh, right now, you know, how, I'll, I'll be thinking, how would this actually complement to Netflix subscription business? Because on one hand, Netflix still needs to put in a huge amount of capital in order to grow its subscriber base by offering more films, more videos to its streaming service. But on the other hand, it is also redirecting some of the capital, some of its money to actually open up some of these entertainment um, locations or retail locations which might offer retail dining and life experiences. So I'm not sure, you know, how this will actually play out for Netflix subscription business. I'm not sure how it's going to grow its subscriber base substantially. But if you think about it, we already form little communities. When people get together, first question is, what are you watching, right? Mm. What have you seen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Analysts at JP Morgan and City are bullish on Netflix. They believe the streaming giant still offers a compelling story, particularly as its competitors raise prices. Netflix is currently trading at around 361 US dollars a share. JP Morgan has set a target price of $455. City even more bullish with a target price of 500 US dollars. That's about 38% above Netflix's current price. Have you watched the recent Netflix documentary about a uh, a woman who spiked her friend's drink with cyanide? Oh dear. No, 
I've not watched it, but I think this this will be something which might be interesting for me. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I'm thinking of just, you know, uh, starting a whole podcast around it. It's so fascinating. Wow. Now, last up, the streaming media business, Spotify. Mm, so Spotify has announced recently announced restrictions in India for its free tier users. So which means that users who are not subscribed to Spotify Premium will not be able to manually play songs in a specific order or even rewind and other features as well. So it's actually very interesting because again, years back when you're looking at platforms like this, they are actually offering a lot of good features for users. But as the years go by, mm. as it gets more difficult, or harder to actually gain um, subscribers' uh, growth mm-hmm. and traction, and of course, costs going up. Spotify, you know, platforms like Spotify would probably have to actually start locking up some of its premium features. And I think, I guess this is probably a good thing for Spotify, considering how for many of these streaming businesses, you need to have some form of heavy capital expenditure. And most of these capex are actually used to actually buy royalties, music royalties from your singers and from your artists. Interesting way of uh, understanding and using human behavior to their advantage. So they prime the audience by getting us used to these features and then lock them up so that we feel, okay, if we have to pay for it now, what can we do? We're used to these features of being able to play what we want. Spotify is Morgan Stanley's top pick. It's a strong endorsement. Shares of Spotify have doubled since the beginning of the year. Let's bring the conversation back to Singapore. Willie, the latest economic numbers are out this morning. Singapore's economy performing better than expected. GDP grew 0.7% in the third quarter of the year compared with a year earlier. Quarter on quarter, the economy grew 1%. However, the manufacturing sector is contracting. What do you make of these numbers? Yeah, so it was very interesting because this actually came on a very different note, um, you know, from the the previous numbers where Singapore actually released a much weaker uh, quarterly GDP. But in this case, when Singapore released its latest third quarter GDP numbers, it seems that it's actually much uh, more optimistic. Singapore's economy actually fared better than expected in this latest quarter. And it could be a sign that our city's, city's recovery is sort of gain, getting more traction. So we are seeing GDP numbers um, through September grew 1% from the previous quarter. And this was driven by construction and largely your services as well. So I was speaking to one of the chief economists, Barnabas Gunn, and he was saying that how um, Singapore's economy is still pretty much connected to the global economy, uh, the, the US economy, the Chinese economy. And all this, despite the Chinese economy, for example, struggling with its weak economic data and property sector, um, the US economy is providing very strong support. And this is sort of a, a, a momentum. Uh, it provides a very strong position positive momentum for Singapore's economy in terms of its manufacturing sector, in terms of the semiconductor sector as well. Very good overview. I just want to ask you on that point of gearing ratios. Do you think some flexibility, it's a hypothetical, but do you think some flexibility should be built into those uh, gearing ratios so that REITs that are struggling with high interest rates and uh, lowering valuations are able to cope? Yeah, I mean, for sure, if you see for the MAS, I think what they, are recently, what they have recently said that if your gearing ratio has increased as a result of falling property valuations, mm-hmm. um, there won't be a need to actually sell down or try to reduce the gearing ratio. So I think MAS has that flexibility. And for me, I think that having this flexibility is actually uh, um, a good thing because if you compare Singapore's gearing ratio to um, the US REITs, for example, the yeah. US REIT market has been around for 
for a very long time, you know, since the 1960s. And many of the REITs in the US, they have gearing ratio of up to 50%. So if you look at good REITs, where they're able to manage their borrowing costs, where they're able to actually continue grow, growing rent, I don't see a reason why Singapore REITs can't go slightly higher, you know, despite, you know, in a high interest rate environment. And you might disagree with me here, um, you know, with this high interest rate environment. But if you think about it, REITs at the end of the day are financing vehicles. If they're able to actually manage their, their, their financing costs, if they're able to actually manage some of their rent, their profits, I don't see a reason why they can actually go higher in terms of their gearing ratio. Now, what I will pay attention to apart from the gearing ratio, is how they manage their hedges or their interest rate swaps. Interest rate swaps, meaning how they actually convert um, the floating rates or the floating interest costs to fixed costs. So I'll be looking, uh, I'm looking for REITs when some of these interest rate swaps would expire, mm -hmm. when they expire, and how much more expensive they need to renew some of these swaps going forward because that could actually add on to the interest cost. Lots of valuable information there from our friend Willie King. You can read more at his blog, Dividend Titan. Willie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.